Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing all right. Uh, How about yourself, Sarah? I'm a little tired from talking. Um, We guested on a couple of shows. That's right, yes. Um, I don't know, like, the schedule for when episodes are coming out. But we recently did guest appearances on two podcasts. One is Amusement Sparks, a podcast by Andrew Spawn, who has guests on to... What can we turn into amusement parks, Yeah, like, essentially design a hypothetical amusement park is each episode. But it's, you know, also an excuse to, like, talk to the guest. And our amusement park is, of course, a horror genre amusement park. Horror land. And it's divided into, like, different areas for the different subgenres and stuff and you can hear all about that when the episode goes up i think he said it was going to be going up like november 2nd or something like that yeah just after halloween the other people that we guested with was rank and vile yes which was super super exciting to go on to our greatest rivals show <laughs> and and guest for them um Quincy was sort of unavailable to record, so Ryan needed a guest and had us on very nicely to talk about Shin Gojira. So if you couldn't get enough of us talking for two and a half hours about Gojira on our own show, and you want to hear our thoughts on another really, really good Godzilla movie, you can check out the upcoming episode of Rankin Vile about Shin Gojira. In other news, we have a new patron to thank this week. Oh, really? Yeah! So thank you to Joshua Shanklin for coming on to be a patron of the night at patreon.com slash Podcast. See, Joshua is smart. Mm. He's coming in beginning of October. Right. October is when we have some special spooky content going on. That's right. Uh, which is yet to be revealed, actually, on, mm. uh, on the channel. But in any case... Thanks, Joshua. It's great to have you. Thank you so much, Joshua. If you would like to be like Joshua and help support the show, head over to patreon.com slash Podcast. Lots of exciting news. Mm-hmm. But what are we watching today? Well, Sarah, today we are off to France uh, for our first French horror movie since... Um, like Le de Melvenir. Right. Back in... Nazi-occupied France days. Yeah, 1943. Yes, so it's been a while. And we are watching an all-time classic, Les Diaboliques, from 1955, directed by Henri-Georges Clouseau. This is our first 1955 movie, too. That's also true. Yes. Time keeps inexorably moving forward, even for Scream Scene. (laughs) It has been a while since we've been in France. The last time we were here, the political situation was very different. Yes. Um, What's been going on in France since 1943? A lot. Fair. Fair. Um, We've had four horror movies from France so far. The first was 1928's La Chute de la Maison Usher, Mm -hmm. which uh, that's episode 22, currently ranked at number 56. Pretty good still. Yeah, considering mm-hmm. there's like, what, 170 
films on the list or something? Roughly, yeah. Uh, next was 1936's La Golem. Right. Uh, from episode 59, we ultimately decided it was not a horror movie. Yeah, it was something else. Yes. Something else is definitely a good descriptor. Yeah. Then came 1943's La Main du Diable, uh, episode 103, ranked at number 83. Mm-hmm. And then, as we said, Le Lou de Melvenir from 1943, uh, episode 105B, ranked at number 59. Good showing. Which means that our highest-ranked French film is 1928's Le Chute de la Maison Usher. Okay. Fall of the House of Usher. Right. Okay, just... Yep. You know, some people might not be up on their French, <laughs> in which case we can get away easy with some bad pronunciation. Yeah, no that kidding. I'm sure will happen. Uh huh. Last time we were in France, I talked about the Vichy government, right? Um, which was running the administration of France under German occupation. Vichy France was first established in 1940 by Philippe Pétain, and its main goal as a government was basically, let's collaborate as much as possible with the Germans in an attempt to maintain at least some French independence. Mm. So, southern France, for the most part, besides the western coast, uh, was considered the free zone Mm -hmm. um, for a time. And then northern France was the German military-occupied zone. Mm -hmm. At the time of the Allied invasion of France in 1944... Pierre Laval was leading the Vichy government. So when the Germans were pulling out of France, they pulled the Vichy government along with them uh, in an effort to retain legitimacy mm. of uh, like government of France. Mm. So the Vichy government was uh, taken to Singmengen, uh, where it's kind of known as the Singmengen Enclave. Of course, this is a chaotic time. So by April 1945, that government has been captured, I guess, by um, Free France mm-hmm. and brought back to face the consequences of their actions. Right. Um, Laval was found in Spain and Pétain was found in Switzerland. With Vichy France gone, there was an interim government established known as the Provisional Government of the French Republic, their goal was to basically create a constitution and, like, figure out, okay, what are we going to do trying to put France back together? Sure. It was never designed to, like, last for longer than a few years. Mm-hmm. The provisional government was led by Charles de Gaulle, who had, like, a lot of military experience. He was very heavily involved in the liberation of France in the, in the first place. So he was chosen to figure out, okay, next steps. Mm-hmm. Some results of the provisional government included um, introducing some really good labor laws, setting the foundation for what would eventually become social security programs, and women's suffrage in 1944. Mm -hmm. But eventually, a constitution was drafted and ratified in 1946 with the, I'll say, re-establishment of a party-based parliamentary system. Uh, De Gaulle wasn't really wanting a party system. He wanted something with a little bit more of a centralized government kind of around a presidency. Mm -hmm. So he resigned over this. But the constitution was ratified through a referendum and saw the introduction of the French Fourth Republic in 1946. 
This republic had 21 administration changes over 12 years. Yikes. So it's a very unstable political environment Mm -hmm. that uh, France is in right now. That being said, despite the political instability, there is a lot of economic growth. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, starting in 1945... Uh, to 1975, this is commonly referred to as the Glorious 30, for like 30 years of prosperity. Gotcha. There was no promise of German reparations after World War II, so France was kind of on their own, but they did have a lot of support from the U.S. Marshall Plan, which was happening between 1948 to 51. Uh, in total, they received $2.3 billion uh, of support from the U.S., to kind of kickstart their economy with, like, no strings attached, no repayment plan needed. Now, back in 1944, de Gaulle had introduced uh, a dirigiste economic policy that had the government having a, a, a bit more of a direct role over the economy. Mm-hmm. So it's, it is the opposite of laissez-faire, where, like, the government has, like, no hands on anything, um, but it's in a positive sense. Mm-hmm. And this policy is seen as directly contributing to these 30 years of prosperity. Ultimately, the political instability in their parliamentary system, in part caused by their inaction around decolonization movements in Algeria, Indochina, and other places, mm. led to a referendum on a new constitutional system in 1958, which resulted in the French Fifth Republic with a presidential system. Mm -hmm. And de Gaulle was, like, the main proponent of this new referendum. Right. So de Gaulle's back and ready for action. Right. Uh, And that Fifth Republic is where France is currently. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So, you know, good for them. (laughs) Found something that works for them. Right. So, during the Fourth Republic, 1946-58, to unstable political situation growing economic situation, but a tumultuous social situation. Sure. So post-war France didn't look kindly upon collaborators. Yeah, yeah, true, true dat. In the time leading up to the liberation of France, like the months leading up to the liberation of France, there were uh, many, many executions of people considered to be collaborators. Women who were suspected... Not even confirmed, but suspected as being collaborators, both in, like, social, but also, I guess you could say, the biblical sense of (laughs) these women had their heads shaved. Historians kind of see three main phases during this period. Um, The first is the uh, Epiration Sauvage. Um, Okay. The the Savage Purge. Uh Uh-huh. Where there were um, an estimated 6,000... Summary executions. Yikes. You know, France has a bloody history. Mm-hmm. And they're always, like, one bad day from whipping that guillotine out. Mm-hmm. And this, they had had a few bad days in a row by this point. The, <laughs> the second phase, I guess you could say, began around June 1944, led by the provisional government, which was the Operation Legale, um, the legal purge. So, <laughs> like... <laughs> Legally, you know, let's actually, like, host some actual trials where Uh they can have some representation. Right. And then we'll say that they get executed. Right. During this time, legal commission sentenced 
Um, in total, around 120,000 people, most getting uh, the sentence of national degradation, which basically is just like, hey, you have any social standing, military rank, government's position, anything, class position, anything mm-hmm. like that, that's gone now. You're now a second class citizen. Mm. Around uh, 6,700 people were sentenced to executions. Okay. Um, with only uh, about 790 actually being performed. Mm. The third phase didn't have a fancy title, um, but it's kind of known as being a bit more lenient. And this is where the trial of Philippe Pétain occurred in 1945. Okay. So that's the context that the novel that this film is based on was written in. Mm -hmm. Um, So La Diabolique was released in 1955, and it's based on a novel, So Qui Ne Ta Plus, um, from 1952. Okay. And that translates to She Who Was No More, which is a very good title, I will say. This novel was written by Boileau Narcissac, uh, which is the nom de plume of the writing team Pierre Boileau and Thomas Narcissac, also known as Pierre Iroh. Okay. (laughs) So... If that wasn't clear as mud, the writing team is Pierre Boileau and a guy who wrote under the name Thomas Narcissac, but was born Pierre Iroh. Gotcha. And so together they're Boileau Narcissac. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Pierre Boileau was born in 1906 Paris. His parents hoped that he'd be a great businessman when he grew up, but his childhood interest in detective stories Followed him to adulthood. Yeah. Horrible curse, really. Horrible curse. While he would change jobs, Boileau frequently wrote short stories and novellas uh, and submitted them to newspapers and magazines. In the 1930s, he wrote detective stories about an André Brunel, um, a fictional detective basically based off Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. As many, many people did. Yeah. His 1938 novel, Le Vapeur de Bacchus, the rest of Bacchus, um, won the Prix du Roman d'Aventure in 1938, which is like a great prize for like crime novels, for mm-hmm. example. He was drafted in World War II and was taken prisoner in a German prisoner of war camp in 1940, where he happened to meet Jean-Paul Sartre. As you do. As, as you do. <laughs> Boileau was... Released due to poor health, <laughs> which I know sounds crazy, but it's like, oh, we have to give people back. Okay, we'll give them back, like, the sickly guy. Mm. You know, that's that's kind of... It's expensive to take care of people. Yeah. Uh, and so he returned to Paris in 1942 and worked as a social worker with penal colonies. Okay. He resumed writing in 1945, publishing the novel L'Assassin Vient la Men Vides. The assassin comes with empty hands. Mm. The other uh, member of this writing team is Pierre Iroh. He was born in 1908 at uh, Rochefort-sur-Mer to a family of uh, sailors. Okay, yeah. Now, he would have joined the family business, if not for a childhood accident, which resulted in him losing an eye. Still, he would go fishing on the Charente River. Um, between the towns St. Thomas and Narcissac, which would 
become the name for his writing pseudonym. He'd enter university, earning literature and philosophy degrees, and eventually becoming a professor of philosophy and literature at the Lycée Georges Clemenceau in 1945, where he taught until his retirement in 1967. Cool. Uh, as Thomas Nassajac, uh, he would write about crime fiction authors um, in different, like, basically like encyclopedias about different authors okay, type sure. of publications. In 1945, he wrote his first crime novel, L'Assassin de Minuit, uh, The Midnight Assassin. Okay. Which, again, it's a really good title. And he would partner with other writers, such as Serge Arquet, under uh, the pseudonym John Silver Lee. <laughs> In 1947, Narce Jacques published L'Esthétique du Roman Policier, Aesthetics of the Crime Novel, which... Boileau read and really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. So intrigued, he wrote Narcissac, and then they began a correspondence, eventually meeting in 1948. By 1950, they began their writing collaboration with Boileau on plots and Narcissac on atmosphere and characterization. Okay. Uh, Narcissac would kind of describe this as Boileau working on the hows and himself working on the whys. Gotcha. Their first novel came in 1951 and was titled L'Ombre et le Poix, The Shadow and the Prey. Again, a fantastic title. <laughs> um, but this was under a different pseudonym. This was under the name Alain Bougarelle, uh, which is an anagram of their last names. Okay. Their second collaboration came in 1952 with Selkui Neta she Who Was No More. And they wrote this under the Boileau-Narsajac name, uh, which they stuck with going forward. Gotcha. They were like, we got success, Kate, we'll keep this name. Sure. They would go on to enjoy success both together and separately as authors and screenwriters. Their 1954 novel, D'Entre L'Amour, was adapted by Alfred Hitchcock into 1958's Vertigo. Mm -hmm. And they both worked on adapting the novel Les Yeux Sans Visage, for Georges Franju's 1962 film, Eyes Without a Face. Ah, Eyes Without a Face is very good. Yeah. They continued to write. In the 1970s, they got permission from the Maurice LeBlanc estate to write new Arsène Lupin stories. Their collaboration only ended when Boileau passed away in 1989. Hmm. Jacques passed away in 1998. Okay. So, she was no more came, like, this was, like, their second collaboration together. It's very early on to, like, basically, like, a 40-year collaboration yeah. together. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. So what's the book about? No synopsis wanted to give away the twist at the end. Oh, okay. Neat. That means that you don't know the twist at the end. Yeah. That implies that you do. Yes. Okay. Interesting. Um, what I do know is that the novel follows Fernand Ravenel who is a traveling salesman. He has a wife at home named Mirye and a mistress abroad named Lucien. Now, his mistress is a doctor with ambition. She wants to open up a practice in southwest France. And she talks Ferdinand into uh, financing this new practice. They come up with a plan to murder his wife for the insurance money. But they want to make it look like an accident, so they actually get the money. So they drown her in a bathtub, 
make it look like an accident, but Mirye's body disappears before it's discovered. And that's all I know. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. What happens next? We'll find out when we watch the movie. Yeah. So, that the novel was adapted to film, we have to thank Vera Cluso, the wife of the director. Uh, she was born Vera Gibson Amado in Rio de Janeiro in 1913. Her father, Gilberto Amado, was a Brazilian politician, writer, journalist, and lawyer. In 1941, she met French actor Leo Lapara, who was touring in Brazil with a theatrical company during World War II. The theater company's South American tour would ultimately stretch out for four years, uh, the length of the war. <laughs> and uh, when they finally left South America, uh, Vera went with them as Lapara's wife. She started acting with the company and went with them back to Paris after the end of the war, uh, continuing to act uh, in small parts in various plays. Her husband had minor roles in the film's Quides Orfevre in 1947, and Retour à la Vie in 1949, which introduced her to director Henri-Georges Clouseau. She divorced Lapera and married Clouseau after working as a continuity assistant on Clouseau's 1950 film, Miquette. He would go on to name his production company, Vera Films, after her. Clouseau was born in Niort, France, in 1907, the son of a bookseller. His father's bookstore went broke, and Clouseau was sent to naval school. But he couldn't become a cadet due to his poor eyesight. He studied political science in Paris, where he began writing plays as well as intertitles for movies. Impressed with his work, producer Adolf Oso hired him and sent him to Berlin to write French intertitles for German films. What year is this? We're in the late 20s. Okay, cool. With the rise of sound... Glouzeau continued to translate scripts for the French versions of early multilingual films during that period where, like, you would shoot the scene three times in English, German, and French. Yeah. He made his own first short film in Berlin in 1931. In 1934, he was fired by Ufa uh, due to his friendship with Jewish film producers, uh, and he left Germany. But in 1935, he was diagnosed with tuberculosis and sent to live in a sanatorium in Switzerland where he was bedridden for five years. Wow. I mean, impressive that he survived. Tuberculosis always seems like a death sentence. It's the 1930s. Um, sure. I'm probably thinking of like Victorian times, yeah, tuberculosis. Yeah, yeah. When he left and returned to Paris, uh, he could not enter military service due to his poor health, and most of his film industry contacts had fled to escape the Nazis. So uh, he was kind of left behind, and when the Nazis took over France and also the French film industry, setting up the Continental Films uh, Company that just sort of ran all of French film for a while under the Nazis... One of the German film producers set up there remembered Clouseau from his time in Berlin and offered him work. Clouseau was desperate for money, so he took it. He wrote and directed two very well-regarded and successful mystery novel adaptations before attracting controversy with his 1943 film Le Corbeau. So it's a movie about a small French town where everyone starts receiving letters 
that have like horrible things they've done in the letter. Like kind of like I know what you did last summer kind of thing. (laughs) And the film was controversial on all sides. It was seen as a condemnation of collaboration by the Vichy government. Uh, But it was also seen as a critique of the occupation by the Nazis, while the French resistance saw it as vilifying the common French people, and the Catholic Church thought it was immoral. Oh, so he just made everyone mad. Mm -hmm. It was a great success at the box office. Sure, everyone wants to see the, like, thing everyone's talking about and is upset about. Exactly. Uh, Continental Films did fire Clouseau over it. Oh, no. After the war, Gluzo was put on trial for collaborating with the Nazis, mm-hmm. and his sentence was a ban on being a filmmaker, essentially. He was forbidden from ever being on a film set or touching a film camera for the rest of his life. Uh, French notables like Jean Cocteau and Jean-Paul Sartre opposed this ruling, and so the ban was eventually shortened from life to two years. That's a pretty significant cut of, uh, of years, so good, good for them, I guess. When Glouzeau started making movies again, he stuck to crowd-pleasing police procedurals and literary adaptations. His 1948 film Manon was a hit in theaters and won the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival. He married Vera in January of 1950, And they went back to her home in Brazil for their honeymoon, bringing a film crew with them. The (laughs) uh, Clouseaus wanted to create a documentary about the living conditions in the favelas. The Brazilian government took issue with the film uh, showing the favelas instead of focusing on the more tourist-friendly parts of Brazil. And so the film was never finished. Gluzo's next project would incorporate his South American experiences, however, as he adapted a novel about four men driving a truck of nitroglycerin over dangerous South American roads. He co-wrote the script for this film with his brother, Jean Clouseau, who took the name Jérôme Geronimi <laughs> as his pseudonym to write with his brother. Clouseau introduced a female character to the story who was not present in the novel, a part specifically written for his wife Vera to play. Le Salaire de la Pour, The Wages of Fear, was a huge hit in France and won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. When it was released in the United States, with about 30 minutes of scenes that were considered anti-American cut out of it, it was also very well received. By making the film through his own production company, Clouseau ensured that he had, like, creative control, and the success of Wages of Fear meant that he had even more control over his next project. It was Vera who brought the Boileau Narsajak novel to Clouseau's attention. Clouseau read the novel in a single night and optioned the film rights the next morning, reportedly beating out Alfred Hitchcock by a matter of hours. Oh, dang. He wrote the script over 18 months with his brother, making many changes to the story. Um, He kept the central idea of, you know, two people teaming up to murder a third person and making it look like an accident in a bathtub and then, like, the body goes missing and he kept the twist ending and stuff. But a lot of the details he changed. He thought that the insurance scam angle was boring. He changed the professions of all the characters. He changed the setting to his hometown And he most significantly changed the motive for the murder 
and the identity of the murderers, so that instead of the husband and mistress teaming up to kill the wife, it is now the mistress and wife teaming up to kill the husband. Oh, that's fun. This was done in order to give Vera a bigger role in the film, because she would be playing the wife, uh, as Clouseau believed that she was unsuited to the part of the mistress. Okay. So by turning the husband into the murder victim, uh, Vera got to be in the movie more. Sure. I can understand why he thought the insurance thing was boring, because when did Double Indemnity... 1944. Yeah. Yes. And that's, like, the big, like, murder someone for insurance. Yeah, it's been done. Yeah. For the role of the mistress, Clouseau cast actress Simone Signoret so that Vera would have a strong, experienced actress to work off of in her scenes. Signoret was born Simone Kaminker in Germany in 1921. She grew up in Paris and was highly educated. During the occupation, she fraternized with writers, artists, and other intellectuals who encouraged her to try acting. She took her mother's maiden name to disguise her Jewish ethnicity. Her looks led her to often be cast as femme fatales and sex workers. Uh, but she quickly became very popular and acclaimed. When she signed on with Glouzeau to film this movie, she signed for an eight-week contract. Paul Maurice was cast as the husband. Maurice was a singer-turned-actor who was well-known for playing icy, sophisticated characters. <laughs> Shooting began in August of 1954 and quickly fell behind schedule. Uh, Clouseau's relationship with Signore soured over the course of the shoot. The director also worked to find lighting setups that would highlight Vera and mute Signore so that the more experienced actress wouldn't upstage his wife. Uh, that's a problem, bud. Cinematographer Armand Tirard used two camera crews to try and speed up the shoot, uh, but it ultimately stretched on from eight weeks to 16, wrapping in November. Twelve weeks after shooting started, Signore was supposed to start rehearsals for production of The Crucible that she was starring in. Originally, there was no scheduling conflict, but the late shoot created one, um, because Clouseau believed that film sets are, like, well-timed, well-oiled machines. That they have to, like, work in a particular way. You can't, like, disrupt what's going on, otherwise the whole thing will fall apart. And the person who's in charge of, like, what that work looks like is the director. And so he refused to alter the production schedule or the shooting schedule in any way to accommodate Signore which meant that she had to go right from shooting to rehearsals and back again operating on very little sleep. Vera, for her part, would step in to mediate disputes between Simone and Clouseau or inflame them, depending on her mood that day. Oh, no. On set, the crew observed that the three mirrored the three central characters in the story. When shooting wrapped, Signore found that she hadn't read her contract very carefully. Despite the filming taking twice as long as expected, she would only be paid for eight weeks because her contract was an eight-week contract and there was nothing in it about overtime. Um, what she should have done is when filming went late, she should have either 
left the shoot or renegotiated her contract, but she just kept working because she assumed, like, yeah, "Yeah, this is my job, and that, like, the contract would have a provision for, like, oh, you know, overtime is this much or whatever. Yeah. Uh, But it didn't. And her attempts to appeal her contract failed. So she was only paid for eight out of the 16 weeks, and production ended with Signore not being on speaking terms with either Vera or Cluzo. Understandably. That sounds like a real mess for her. Mm-hmm. Originally, the title of the film was Le Vove, The Widows, uh, but this was deemed unmarketable. So then it was titled Le Demoniac, and then finally it was changed to Le Diabolique. However, there was a short story collection called Le Diabolique in the 19th century, so in order to be permitted to use that title... Um, because France has different and, in some ways, stricter copyright laws, uh, Clouseau had to acknowledge the short story collection and its author in some way, uh, which he chose to do by placing a quote from that author as a preface to the movie. Okay. When the film was released on January 29th, 1955, uh, Clouseau wanted to preserve the story's twist ending, uh, so he did a number of things that hadn't been done before. Uh, First, he asked theaters to forbid late admittance, the standard practice of letting audiences just come into a screening at any point and stay until the film reel looped over and they got to the point where they came in. Because this could mean that people who had seen the ending would still be in the theater watching the beginning of the movie when new people came in and could spoil it. Yeah. Uh, So instead, audiences had to arrive on time Doors to the theaters were closed once the film began, and then audiences had to leave after the film was over. Uh, And this was very abnormal at the time. Yeah, normally you could just, like, sit in the theater all day and come and go as you pleased. Yeah, and you have to remember that this is in the context of an era when you had a theater that showed one movie on one screen before multiplexes, right? This gambit, which Hitchcock would copy five years later for the release of Psycho, was highly successful, as the movie itself was highly successful. A big commercial and critical hit. Um, The other thing that Cluzo did that was semi-new, although we have seen versions of it back in the early sound days and late silent era, uh, is that the movie ends with, like, a spoiler card telling you not to spoil the ending of the movie to other people. Oh, yeah, we've seen that. Yeah. I think uh, the first time we saw it was Cat and the Canary. Yeah, um, The Bat Whispers also ends that way. Like I said, the movie was a huge box office hit in France, a huge critical hit in France, and upon release in the United States on November 21st, 1955, edited down by seven minutes, that success repeated itself with the critics agreeing with audiences that it was a successful film, although the amount of horror content in the film was considered distasteful uh, by critics. Well, that's a good sign. It was the most successful foreign film in the United States since the silent era. It kind of reminded American audiences that movies were made in other countries as well, and it kind of established a market four foreign releases in the United States that would continue to take off through the late 50s with films like Godzilla, King of the Monsters, Seven Samurai, um, The Seventh Seal, and, like, the rise of, like, 
French and Italian films as being like popular and trendy through the 1960s. Yeah, and of course you mean like two general audiences, not just like a an art house mm-hmm. kind of audience. Mm-hmm. The lineups for entry to theaters that were showing Diabolique, as it's called in the U.S., went uh, around the block, and this was noticed by Alfred Hitchcock, who then made his next movie based on a book from the same authors. It was also noticed by William Castle, uh, who went, oh, audiences like horror movies, you say, with twists and gimmicks? Uh, So both producers were very much inspired by the success of this movie. And a lot of people tie Hitchcock's Psycho to this movie, which makes sense because the author of the novel Psycho cited this as his favorite movie. Mm -hmm. Um, So very influential uh, going down the way. And it's certainly like the first big major movie uh, to be a huge hit that does the twist ending thing. Not just like unmasking at the end of the movie like who the killer was this whole time or whatever but like the more um like Shyamalan style twist where like (laughs) everything you thought you knew was wrong and your whole perspective of the story is now different that kind of thing he was a ghost the whole time and continued to go to work yeah exactly Vera would also star in her husband's next film Les Espions in 1957 and she would co-write his film La Verité in 1960 But soon after filming Wrapped on La Verite, she passed away of heart failure. Damn. Uh, This brought renewed attention to La Diabolique because her character in the movie has heart troubles. Oh. After Vera's death, uh, Glouzeau's career sort of faltered because the critics-turned-filmmakers of the French New Wave judged him to be an old-fashioned, safe, commercial director who made movies that, like didn't push boundaries uh, stylistically and were in like safe genres like crime thrillers and, and literary adaptations. Glouzeau tried to take this criticism to heart, uh, experimenting more with the content and style of his future projects, uh, but his ill health returned, and that frequently led to pauses in his ability to work. And he ultimately passed away in 1977. That's too bad. Yeah. So, Diabolique is still considered a major classic to this day. It is available on Blu-ray from the Criterion Collection and a stream on the Criterion Channel. Oh, so that's how we'll be watching it. Mm -hmm. Folks, hopefully you can find a copy and watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Le Diabolique from 1955, directed by Henri-Georges Clouseau. See you on the other side, everybody. Hey, Creatures of the Night, just a brief content warning that La Diabolique does have domestic abuse and a suggestion of rape. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching La Diabolique from 1955, directed by Henri-Georges Clouseau. And I really liked this movie. It's very good. Mm -hmm. Um, Sarah, what did you think? Yeah, I think it's very good. Uh, I think you can see how other movies trickle from this. Yes. Uh, Both in the, you know, what we said in the context setting of Hitchcock with Psycho and whatever, but you also see some stuff from, like, The Shining, for example. Sure, sure. I think definitely there's a lot of future movies you can trace 
back to this movie. That's that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, which uh, means it was a good thing that we watched it. It we- is a good thing that we watched it. Why do you say it like that? Oh, no reason. Hmm. Um, do we want to talk about the story? I guess, so up front, like, we're going to be talking about the twist ending. So, like, spoiler alert for this 65-year-old movie, um, but we aren't going to be, like, those we- online synopses and, and leave out the, the ending. Yeah, we've never done that in the past, so. Exactly. Our film is set in Saint-Cloud, which is near Paris, at the De La Salle boarding school. Uh, our principal is Michel De La Salle, and he runs the school with his wife, Christina. There's also a school watchman, two male teachers, and a female teacher named Nicole. Now, we see that Michelle is particularly cruel to the children, just, like, yelling and berating them all the time. He's abusive to Christina. He's very condescending to his other staff. Further, he's known to be having an affair with Nicole. This is, like, an open secret to everyone, including the children. Yeah, Christina knows. Um, And, of course, he beats up Nicole as well. It's the Friday before the long weekend, and Nicole has a plan. The plan is to kill Michelle. (laughs) Christina um, is younger, but she's ill. Uh, She has a heart condition. And we see that she's also, like, devoutly Catholic. She doesn't want to divorce Michelle, even with his abusive behavior. And so she's also like, I'm not going to kill him um, and partake in this murder plot. But... Michelle is consistently awful, so she reluctantly agrees. Throughout the course of the story, we learn that Christina's family has money and that this school was part of her dowry. Um, She's always wanted to be a teacher. Michelle, not so much. Um, Her inheritance pays for everything at the school. Um, The school itself, the teachers, the food, lodgings, all of it. Yet, the school, being managed by Michelle, gets, like, the cheapest stuff. So, like, really shitty food. The place is run down. There's a pool on site, and it hasn't been cleaned in months because it takes money to do that. So, the plan to kill Michelle involves Nicole and Christina going to Nicole's house in Niort uh, for the weekend. um, And basically, like, luring Michelle there in order to get him away from the school. To do this, Christina says, you know, I'm going to get a divorce. Um, There's nothing you can do to stop me. So he heads down to New York to talk it over. So the plan goes off without a hitch. They drug him by spiking alcohol. They put him in a full bathtub and drown him. Uh, He does wake up at one point as they start to put him in, and Nicole pushes him down. Um, They keep him down with a big mantle statue. They smuggle him back to the school, and at night they dump his body into the dirty pool. So like I said, everything's going according to plan, except the body is never found in the morning. Yeah, it seems like probably what the plan was supposed to be was, you know, 
the body would swell with gas and rise up to the surface of the pool, and people would just assume that he, like, got drunk and fell in and drowned or something. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the, that, the body's not doing that. <laughs> so Christina is getting sick from stress and anxiety, uh, which is not good for her heart, as she waits for people to find the body. Uh, Nicole is getting worried as well, but is more of the level-headed partner in the uh, crime. And then things start kind of adding up that increase the tension. So they find a way to get the pool drained without it seeming suspicious. Uh, Nicole drops her keys in there um, but when like tossing it to one of the schoolboys. Um, but the body is not there. They do find Michelle's lighter. Later, the suit that Michelle would have been wearing when he was murdered is returned from the dry cleaners. And when they ask the dry cleaners about it, they're like, yeah, a man who matched Michelle's description dropped it off. He did leave this hotel key. So they go to the hotel, but there's no sign of him. They think that maybe they're being blackmailed. But when Christina goes up to the room by herself, there's no one there. Um, and a housekeeper says, you know, he's never here during the day. There is a naked body found in the Sign River. So Christina goes to the morgue to be like, I think this is my husband. He's been missing for th- several days. Let me identify him. Turns out the body is not Michelle's. But as Christina is leaving, a retired policeman with some very strong Columbo vibes <laughs> introduces himself as Alfred Fischer, uh, and he starts investigating the case. Um, Christina tries to be like, no, like, I'm sure I'm just overreacting, blah, 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 and he's like, no, don't worry, you won't have to pay me anything unless I find something, don't worry. Yeah, he kind of just, like, doesn't take no for an answer, like... Yeah. So Fischer is asking the other teachers, you know, what's going on, and Christina and Nicole are trying to be as, like, hush-hush as possible. Things really ramp up for Christina when uh, this kid claims he saw uh, the principal, saw Michelle. Um, he had a slingshot, he broke a window, because kids will be kids, I guess. Mm. Um, and the principal was punishing him by making him clean up some leaves. And he's like, no, I really did see the principal, but he's punished. Has because, to go stand in the corner for lying. Yeah, and he's there for like a full day. Yeah. Because he, he won't re- take it back because he really saw the principal. True enough, that slingshot is in the administrator's office where Michelle would have put it. But again, how could that be possible? Michelle's dead. Christina's nerves are shot. So doctors have been called throughout the whole time. Um, but now they're like, no, you're not allowed to leave this room. Like, all you need is rest No excitement, just rest here. Unfortunately, it's the day of the school photo, and what's really neat is this photographer can just, like, snap the photo and then develop it in his truck, which is really neat. I've never seen that before, Um, but it makes sense. Nicole looks at the developed photo, and she thinks she sees Michelle's face in a window behind where the group photo is. It's definitely, like, one of those, like, you know, weird, like, creepypasta-style photos where it's like, is that strange shape in the window like a, a ghost or a person or a weird reflection or what? Yeah, exa- it's exactly that. Um, so she runs up to show Christina. And Christina's like, I can't take this anymore. 
And Nicole's like, I'm really scared too, but I don't want to leave you alone. And Christina, because she's devoutly Catholic, she's like, no, like I'm going to die because of my heart. It's what I deserve and I'm going to hell. You might as well get out of here while you can, Nicole. So Nicole's like, are, are you, are you sure? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, so I'm going to, I'm going to go. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Bye. And she's gone. That night, Christina's having a nightmare. And when she wakes up, who's in her bedroom? Not who you expect. It's, it's Inspector Fichet. Yeah. Lighting his cigar on a devotional candle at uh, the Catholic shrine thing. Christina's like, what the fuck? Ah! And Fichet's like, don't worry. Like, I found him. It's fine. I found him today. You don't need to worry anymore. And she's like, what are you talking about? You, you didn't find him because I killed him. And he's like, oh, really? And she's like, yeah, I'm going to sing like a canary. Yes. Tells him the whole deal. And Fichet's like, really? Well, you rest easy tonight, Christina, because I'll have you acquitted by morning. And he leaves. And Christina's like, I don't understand what is going on. I'm going to sleep. But she is having trouble sleeping because she keeps hearing sounds in the hallway. So later that night, she gets up and she starts looking down the hallway and she hears typewriting coming from Michelle's office. She goes and she sees that the typewriter has indeed been used and it spells out Michelle de la Salle in like the shining style, all work, no play yeah. So Christina is in shock, and then the lights go off, so she screams and runs down the hall, back to the bed, goes to the bathroom to get some water, and I'm sitting here and I'm like, everyone lives in this fucking house, and no one responds to these screams, <laughs> but okay. In the bathroom, she gets some water, and then she looks over, and Michelle's body is in the bathtub, filled with water, and he starts rising, rising out of the bathtub. And Christina is freaking out. She's gasping for air. She's holding her chest because she's having a heart attack. And she croaks. She dies and falls to the floor. Michelle steps out of the bathtub, removes some big-ass contact lenses. He's alive. He's been alive this whole time. He heads to the bedroom to dry off. Nicole joins him. They planned it together. They're rich with the inheritance they'll get from Christina's death. They're going to sell the school. And then Fichet steps out of the shadows and says, and get 15 to 20 years in jail. Ha <laughs> ha. Because he saw the whole thing mm. and figured it out. Mm -hmm. The next day, the school is closing, unfortunately. So all the kids are getting shipped out. And that little boy with the slingshot breaks another window, and one of the male teachers is like, little boy, what the fuck? It's the last day of school. How did you get your slingshot back anyways? And the little boy's like, oh, Madame de la Salle gave it back to me. And the teacher's like, she's dead. We carried her body out this morning. Go stand in the corner, kid. Fuck. And he's like, oh, but she did. She really did give it to me. And that's the end. Mm-hmm. It ends, oh, well, okay, almost the end. Uh, then we get the title card saying, like, hey, don't spoil this for other people, you jerks. Yeah. Don't be uh, devils. Don't be diabolique. Yeah. 
So yeah, I think this is a really good movie. It has some really good psychology with Christina and mm-hmm. Nicole. The big change here from the original book, the husband and mistress team up to kill the wife for the insurance money, right? And then the twist in the book is that the wife's been alive this whole time, just like the husband here. It's the husband who has the bad heart condition and who gets bumped off because the wife and the mistress are actually lesbians. Oh, dope! Um, so that's the that's the book version of the story. Oh, that's so cool! I did like the Thelma and Louise vibe we got in the beginning when like they're carrying out the plan yeah. and stuff before things really start unraveling. Um, I mean, it's clear that Christina and Nicole aren't, like, friends, you know? They, they're they kind of like the enemy of my enemy is my friend situation. Yeah, they can bond because they've both been horribly abused by this guy who they're in a relationship with. I mean, it's, it's kind of like um, if you and someone else were both, like, exes of someone, so you can bond over how you both hate that guy or whatever. Oh, so it's like um, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Right. Where all those exes team up. Yeah, that's right. It's exactly what this movie's like. <laughs> um, I think the twist ending is easy to see coming for a modern audience. Um, just because, like, as audience members, we are more used to twist endings in general. And then, of course, if you know there is a twist ending going into watching this, you're looking kind of for it. Especially because, like, through the middle section of the movie... When we think that Michelle is dead, but there is weird stuff going on, the movie never really gives us, like, a good alternate explanation for what could be going on. I mean, there are three possibilities that all get hinted at, but none of them are given, like, an especial push, right? So, possibility A is that Michelle's ghost is haunting Christina and Nicole, and ultimately, that idea gets its strongest push in the finale when she's up late at night and she's going around the house and hearing the noises and seeing things and a dead body raises up out of the the bathtub at her, right? Um, But in the body of the movie, that possibility isn't really as strongly hinted at. Possibility B is that someone found Michelle's body in the pool and is now, like, fucking with them to, like, get around to blackmailing them. But that possibility never comes up as being too strong because the movie never does any work to, like, set up who the blackmailer could be. Like, if the movie was hinting, you know, that maybe someone at the school, like one of the other staff members, was the blackmailer, that might be more of a misdirect. But it's not that strong. Possibility C is that Michelle is alive, which seems impossible because we've seen him dead, but does turn out, in fact, to be the truth. So... Here's my experience. Mm. Knowing that there was a twist, but not knowing what the twist was. Mm -hmm. I became suspicious when Nicole was consistently getting Christina riled up against the doctor's orders. Yes. Like, the doctors would turn to Nicole and be like, she needs peace and quiet and rest. And Nicole would be like, awesome. Hey, Christina, I found a suit. Look at this spooky photo. Yeah, like, consistently. So I I was like, okay, well, why would Nicole want her dead? Maybe she's next in line to inherit the school. I don't know. Yeah. So I I knew that something was going on with Nicole, but I didn't put together that Michelle was alive until Nicole left. Hmm. Because I was like, no, things are too strong for Nicole to just up and leave. Like, that also doesn't seem 
really like her character being so level-headed up to this point. Yeah. So she's leaving for a reason Michelle must be alive. Yeah, and, you know, if she's trying to get the money and stuff, it doesn't work unless Michelle is still alive, right? Yeah. It's funny because the we're going to bump off the wife for the money is the, like, misdirect plot in the book, and it turns out that's the real plot in the movie, right? As opposed to the real plot being they're lesbians, and here the misdirect is Michelle's a shitty dude, let's team up and kill him. Yeah. Um, I also was, like, curious if maybe the kids had something to do with it. Oh, my God. Well, because, okay, so we're always shown these kids. It's not all boys' school. And we're constantly shown these kids, like, talking about the gossip that they overhear from the teachers. Like, oh, I think those guys are drunks, or I think that guy's a detective, or whatever. And we also always see them hanging around the adults listening in mm-hmm. which like i like that like that's going on while the adults don't seem to notice yeah but it made me go like are these kids fucking with them <laughs> man what a twist that would have been yeah yeah turns but out then, the like, kids the... are just little shits <laughs> but they all like christina yeah right because she's the only teacher who's like not beating them yeah so yeah i wasn't sure if maybe something was going on with the kids that would be a fun version of the movie the, the kids are doing, like, a weekend at Bernie's Yeah, it would, be, I, it would be a pretty weak, like, twist ending. You'd be like, what? It was all just a prank? And the kids would be like, pranksies! And you'd be like, and then Christina dies of a heart attack, and the kids are like, oh, oops. Like, I think pranksies it, went bad. I think it would work for the kids if they were targeting Nicole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because no one seems to really like Nicole especially much, either. Yeah. But She's yeah. not the worst, though. Michelle is, like... Definitely the worst. The movie does the work to make Michelle a shitty enough person that it's believable that, like, Nicole and Christina both want to kill him and that, like, Christina just needs to be, like, kind of pushed into it past her better judgment. Yeah, it does make him a little one note, though. Yeah, but with the twist in mind, it starts to make sense because every time that Christina, like, starts to be like, oh, I don't know about this. Like, maybe murder's wrong. Nicole or Michelle will do something to either point out that Michelle's a bastard or to, like, be more of a bastard. So his one-noteness, like, starts to make sense in retrospect when it's like, every time she's like, oh, I don't know, Michelle, maybe I do love you. And he's like, that's right, you do. Now go, like, fucking kneel on your feet and, like, wash my clothes while I'm sitting here drinking or whatever the fuck. Yeah, like, that's fair. Um, yeah, I do think that, like, for an audience in 1955 that's not, like, looking for a twist, that doesn't know there's a twist coming, that would have no reason to think there's a twist coming, it's, like, pretty knockout twist, you know? Yeah, I think so, too. Um, especially because, like, they would be familiar with the code, Mm. and that these chicks are going to get their just desserts from the law. Like, they know that that's something that has to happen. Right. So by making Michelle so terrible, it, I think they would be like, oh, this is just to justify what Christina's doing. Sure. Yeah, and and the movie also, you know, plays around with, like, well, who's more responsible for his death? And, like, Christina's the one who feels all the guilt, but, like, she does... Well, she's Catholic. Right. She does point out to Nicole that, like, well, this was your idea, 
and like you were the one who got the drugs for the thing and like then and after held him under the, the water, water when yeah, he woke up exactly which to an audience in the 50s would feel less like hints that like yeah Nicole's in charge of everything because she has to you know be making sure that the hoax goes off and to an audience in the 50s would feel more like ah we're we're laying the seeds for like why Nicole's the actual bad guy and Christina's you know just been taken advantage of or whatever right yeah especially because Michelle and Nicole both really treat Christina like a child mm-hmm. like um just not really fully able to do things for herself they do this partly because she is younger but also because of her health condition yeah Except for, like, then there'll be the times where they want her to do something and she can't do it because she's sick and they're, like, pissed off at her because of it, so. But also, she starts to take charge and they get frustrated at it because they're like, she's lasting too long. Yes. She wasn't supposed to go up to the hotel room. Yeah. The, um, the one thing that I didn't like about the ending is that once we know the truth, the ending's really rushed, in my opinion. Like, Nicole... And, like, I get that it's, like, the big climactic shocker moment is Michelle rising up out of the bathtub and Christina being scared to death. And that, like, once that's kind of done, there's nothing more that's going to top that, so you want to get to the ending, you know, fairly quickly. Because all you need to do now is explain things, right? But on the other hand, it's just a little weird... With, like, Nicole and Michelle being like, aha, we've got away scot-free. And then Fichet just, like, coming out of the shadows and being like, no, you didn't. Oh, there's one more thing, sir. Because it just kind of feels like the ending of one of those Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes. It does. Where, like, the criminals do a thing and then Hitchcock comes up at the end of the episode to be like, oh, and of course, once they made it to the train station, the police were waiting for them and arrested them and they were hanged. It definitely has that vibe. Which is why I think it's funny that, like, Hitchcock played a role in our context setting. Mm. He plays a role at, in how this movie trickles down. Right. It, it's very funny to kind of see how he has fingerprints on this. The other thing is in the novel, um, The Lesbians Get Away. Dope! This sounds like a great novel. <laughs> so, like, it does feel really tacked on. Especially because, like, if you think about it, and this started to really, like bother me as we kind of like you know sat in the aftermath of the movie if Fichet's just right there why didn't he stop yeah exactly because like he leaves Christina like right before Michelle comes in so it doesn't seem like he left and came back it seems like he was lying in wait the whole time in which case why didn't you save Christina what the fuck is wrong with you yeah like there must have been some time in between him leaving and Michelle's haunting. Right. But, like, it's... Because it's the same night, it's very unclear. Yeah. Like I said, because the movie's ending is rushed, that's not really clarified because the movie doesn't really care at that point. But it does kind of retroactively make Fichet look like a real piece of work. You know? (laughs) It's like, you didn't... He doesn't care about saving lives, Ben. He cares about solving crimes. Right, but, like... (laughs) You you already had them on the crime. You didn't have to let them go through with the murder. Like, <laughs> that's really fucked up. Like, I see where you're coming from. Mm. But I did appreciate the handling of Fichet's character. Because he had to be there for the end. Right. These guys can't get away. That's right. But when he's introduced in a different movie, and in movies we've seen, mm. 
the focus of the film will shift to him. Right, and it does And doesn't. him solving the thing and us being like, oh, like, is he going to figure out what the girls did? Right. But instead, we stay focused on Christina's dread and anxiety. It's a little bit like um, Dalim for Murder, where the detective kind of comes in, like, halfway through, and the movie switches from, like, am I going to get away with this to am I going to get caught, right? Yeah. And... It's, it's, the relationship between the two of them is interesting just because, like, she doesn't want him around because he's, she thinks he's going to find out, you know, that they killed him, but she also kind of does want him around because she wants someone to figure out what the fuck is going on with the missing body, right? Yeah. One thing that I didn't mention is the music choice. Oh, yeah, that there is none? Well, okay, so we have music in the opening credits and right at the end... Um, but throughout the whole movie, there's no music. I remember when you told me that that was going to be happening, right as we were starting up the movie, I was like, oh, that's that's a weird choice. But okay, whatever. What I found was it kind of kept you right in it. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a feeling of, like, distance. Yeah. And it reminded me of this episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. When her mom is dead. It's an episode called The Body. Yeah, yeah. Um, Obviously different intentions with the choice of not having music. But I remember reading how um, the choice of not having music in that episode is to remove any kind of, like, distance between the viewer and what's going on on screen. Yeah. To make it feel even more raw. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily make the story more realistic to remove music, but it makes you feel... More like you're in the moment with the characters. It helps remove a layer of artificiality. Yeah. Even though, like, you know it's a movie. Right. But it's kind of like when you go to the theater. It takes away the feeling of this is a story being told to you. Because that's what music does. It helps tell the story to you. And instead gives you more of a sense of, like, you're here as, like, a voyeur watching these events unfold. Exactly. Um... Because of the lack of music, I think that the editing by Madeleine Jug is doing a lot of heavy lifting here to keep the tension up without music. Absolutely. And, and it's a lady editor. Right. What a surprise. It's not. it's not a surprise. Many accomplished editors are women. Yeah. Um, the cinematography by Armand Tirard is good throughout the movie, but... The cinematography and the editing both, like, really shine during the finale when it's, like, dark and it's Christina going through, like, the halls of the school with, like, the stream of light from the door as it opens and, like, you know, the footsteps creaking on the floorboards and and all of that. Absolutely. Yeah, the finale's really, like, the strongest part of the movie, for sure. No, I think there's, like, a lot of really strong points. Um, It's pretty gruesome. And graphic when you see Michelle and Christina's deaths. Yeah, there isn't Michelle's like... Michelle's death, quote, quote, right. but like, yeah. There isn't, um, you know, any blood because it's like a drowning and a heart attack. But like, you do get to see like, yeah, like Michelle's quote unquote dead body in the bathtub and like kind of staring blankly when it's in the like wicker basket getting transported. And then like... The bit where he's in the bathtub at the end is, like, intentionally very gruesome looking to the point where, like, in the story he's wearing, like, 
these things over his eyes to make it look like his eyes have rolled back yeah, into his head and stuff. Lenses. Um, and then of course with Christina, like we just watch her be scared to death. Yeah. You know, it's very effective. I think the centerpiece of the movie is Vera Clouseau's performances, Christina, right? Because we, for the movie to work, we have to buy this character being pushed to the point where we can watch her literally be scared to death on screen and for that to seem like the absolute most plausible thing that would happen in that moment, (laughs) right? Because, like, the conceit of being scared to death is one that's always kind of hard to pull off in movies. Yeah, like, we've already seen an attempt. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But I think they do it pretty well here. Yeah, I think this is the most convincingly I've ever seen it done. Yeah. Um, one thing that is kind of interesting is, you know, when you see Michelle being such a bastard to everyone, it briefly comes up that he was like a soldier in the war, Mm -hmm. right? And so like, it's not a theme in the movie. It's not talked about. It's not brought up, but like, it's a very easy line to draw of this guy who's like kind of taken trauma he's experienced and is now, um, passing it on to the people around him. Absolutely. Which is like a very common thing and was really common with guys who came back from World War II, for sure. Yeah. Now, that being said, um, when Christina goes to the morgue, she mentions that she and Michelle had been married for eight years. It's 1955, so that would have been 1947, mm-hmm. post-war. Mm-hmm. So... He kind of already would have been a bit of a jerk. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, I mean, he's supposed to be 35, um, which the actor playing him is not 35. <laughs> um, but if he's 35, that means they got married when he was 27. And, yeah, so he definitely, like, would have fought in the war and stuff, right? So, yeah. So here's here's where I think we're going to get into some meaty, meaty discussion. Ooh. Nom, 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 nom. I've said this before. On the show, a good horror scene does not a horror movie make. And I think that, like, the murder of Michelle, quote-unquote, involves some gruesome imagery. And I think the finale with her in the house and the sounds and the whatever is definitely some edge-of-your-seat stuff. It's like a master class in rising tension, and the imagery there is extremely alarming and disturbing and memorable. But this doesn't feel like a horror movie to me. This doesn't register as a horror movie to me. This, for me, is a suspense thriller. And it's like one of the absolute best. I mean, this is doing the Hitchcock thing, you know, better than a lot of actual Hitchcock movies. But I don't think it's a horror film. Um, I think it has a great horror scene at the end. But I think the majority of this movie is a suspense thriller. It's not so much about being afraid as it is being tense and being on the edge of your seat. I think if greater emphasis had been placed on the idea that, like, Michelle's haunting them, and it's this, like, fake haunting thing, that would have brought it more into the realm of horror for me. Although we have, like, seen that story a lot of times before. Like, the fake ghost, right? Um, But because throughout the body of the film, it's more about these, like, clues and, like, putting pieces together and, like, following leads and stuff like that. 
it just feels more like thriller to me. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I'm at with this. What do you think? I'm on the side of horror. Yeah, I figured this was going to happen. <laughs> I figured this what, was What, did gonna... you read the plot twist? I, I, I figured this was going to happen uh, when I let drop at the start of this discussion that I was like, I'm glad we watched this movie. And you're like, what the hell does that mean? And what that means is because I don't think it's horror. Yeah, I figured. Um, I think this is horror for a couple of reasons. And a couple of those reasons are also metatextual. Okay. So we'll just, you know, cover the textual stuff and then metatextual later. Okay. The movie visually puts a lot of emphasis on gruesome images and also the terror that Christina is feeling. Mm. Like, I'm thinking of the scene where, like, they're putting him into the bathtub and... You know, it's terrifying to see him try to get out. Nicole pushes him down, and then the camera focuses on Christina's reaction to this. Yeah. We do cut back to Michelle's drowned face, quote-unquote drowned. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) People get it. We don't need to keep saying quote-unquote. But it's just a consistent thing. I get where you're coming from with the feeling of thriller. Like, there were a few moments where... um, Especially as they're trying to drive back and put him in the pool. There were a few moments that were really reminiscent of Hitchcock's rope. Yeah, it's it's that thing where, like... Oh, are they going to notice it? Okay, they didn't notice it. Yeah, it's the, it's the part of the movie where, like, can we pull off the perfect murder? And, like, what's the thing that's going to go wrong? And as an audience member, you're, like, looking for, like, what's that thing that's going to go wrong? And, of course, the thing that goes wrong is that there was never a murder to begin with. <laughs> Damn. That's murder 101. Yeah, kill Have the, a body. Kill the guy. So I think that this movie visually is putting a lot of emphasis on the horror. I think you're right that it is like coming from a thriller plot. Mm. But the way that it's pulling it off is horror. I feel like it would be more thriller and following up on those clues and stuff if we had more of a thread to pull on. Like right. you said, we have these three options, but they're just kind of presented, and nothing's really further done with them, mm-hmm. which to me makes it a little bit more terrifying, because it's like, well, is it a, a ghost? Like, what really is going on? And you're kind of put into Christina's shoes of, like, not really being sure what's going on, not being able to figure it out, and being stuck in bed because of your condition that you can't even solve it. Huh. You're kind of powerless. I think maybe that was one of my problems was I never felt like I was identifying with Christina. Like I felt like I was watching her story and was definitely like pulled in to watching her story. But I never felt like as the audience that I was identifying with her, I felt more like I was viewing her, you know, as a voyeur rather than as like a audience identification, second person kind of thing. And I think maybe that's why the horror didn't come across, because I agree that it's a horror story from her point of view, given that she literally dies of fright at the end of it, right? But I just didn't feel that. Like, it never felt like, as an audience member, like the movie was trying to freak me out. It felt like the movie was trying to, like, intrigue me and, like, dare me to figure out what the fuck was going on knowing that it wasn't giving me enough clues to do so and just wanting to keep me like 
trying to pay attention because it feels like, you know, the the magic trick that the movie's pulling is going, oh yeah, you know, this is a murder mystery story, you know, the kind where we know who did it and it's all about, will the detective figure it out or whatever. And so like, pay attention, like pay attention to the clues, like figure it out because that's how these movies work. And then it's like, there's nothing to figure out, motherfucker, he was alive this whole time. <laughs> um, and I think that's shown by the fact that the movie doesn't really care about Fichet. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, now, the metatextual evidence for it being a horror movie is, I think it's a case of, like, okay, a lot of people like to say that Hitchcock is a king of horror. Yeah, he gets this reputation as a horror director. And he's not. No. He's a thriller director. Absolutely. Given that this movie is hugely inspiring to his body of work, Mm -hmm. not that he... Yeah, it's worth saying that Hitchcock had already had a long and varied career by this point. Yeah, but you can see this movie's influence. Yes. It's kind of like, you know, two asteroids passing each other and Hitchcock's asteroids trajectory is affected by the gravity of this movie. Right, yeah. You know, it's not like his thing is completely changed but it does have a pretty significant effect i would say that that effect is probably why a lot of hitchcock's movies are considered horror even if they are more hitchcockian thriller i think like the big thing here because i definitely see the point you're making and i feel like the big thing here is like hitchcock's reputation as a horror director comes from one movie in his, like, whole body of work. Because, like, no one was calling Hitchcock, like, a horror guy in, like, the 30s or 40s. Like, he was making, like, spy movies and, like, stuff like that, right? Isn't The Lodger considered? Lodger is definitely thriller. But whatever. Listen, if The Lodger was horror, we would have seen it (laughs) on the show. But, you know, you definitely see this idea of, like, Hitchcock, the master of horror, once he makes Psycho. Yeah. And, like, Psycho is definitely a horror movie, and Diabolique is a huge influence on Psycho. So the question becomes, like, does birthing a horror movie retroactively make you a horror movie? Yeah. It's a little bit of a... A little bit of a chicken and the egg situation. Well, it's it's also, you know, that problem of, like... Like, yes, chicken and the egg, but, like, I think more literally it's a, like, quote-unquote missing link problem of, like, people think that when you're looking at, like, an evolutionary tree of creatures that you're going to see, like, some definitive moment where, like, oh, this is definitely an ape, and then this next thing is definitely a person, right? And it's, like, that's not how any of this works, and having to, like, put some sort of arbitrary line there is very difficult it's the same thing with like movie genres it's like well you know is this horror is this thriller i know that the next thing that this inspires is definitely horror and i know that the like context that this movie is coming out of is thriller because this certainly doesn't feel like the other horror movies we're seeing in this period which i think is one of the reasons why i had a hard time like clocking it as horror yeah and its roots are definitely in crime thriller Yeah. Like, the novel, like, everything. Yeah, I would almost say that, like, that's part of what makes the twist ending effective, is that, like, it's a movie that you think is a thriller that sort of has a horror twist ending. Yeah. But but then, like, 
that twist ending immediately then gets turned into a standard thriller ending when the cop shows up. Yeah. But, like, yeah, so it's it's clearly, like, this intermediary form. If we were doing a podcast of watching every thriller movie yeah. ever made, yeah. and we came to this movie, I would say that this would be a branching off point from thriller, like, one of many, from thriller to horror. Right. It'd be yet another addition to that. Right. We would have it on the list, but we wouldn't put the stuff inspired by it on the list. Yeah. Yeah. Conversely, I think this is worth having on the list as a result of it being that, um, almost like a grafting. Sure. Of thriller into horror. Yeah, I definitely think it was worthwhile to see it for the show, for sure, because of that. Yeah. That's tough. For me, it didn't pass the, like, the, the smell test. It just, like, didn't pass the, like, it didn't feel like horror to me watching it because it didn't feel like the movie was trying to make me feel afraid so much as it was trying to make me feel like on the edge of my seat, like intrigued. But like I said, that was because I didn't feel like I was identifying with Christina. So I'm willing to allow that like, if watching the movie you identify with Christina, it's a horror movie. I think that's accurate. I just didn't think the movie was doing that for me, but maybe that's, a me problem and not a movie problem? I'm not sure. It's definitely a you problem. Okay. I'm just kidding. I love you so much. <laughs> yeah, but, like, no, that's a legitimate thing to say. That like, like did, were you feeling like you were in Christina's shoes watching the movie? Yeah, it felt like um, you could feel the influence from Gaslight. You could feel the influence from the police procedurals. But it also was like you could feel the influence from Cat in the Canary. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, if we were to put it on the list, here's where I was looking. Okay. Because of the domestic violence in this movie, I was immediately thinking of Murders in the Zoo. Oh, okay. I haven't thought about Murders in the Zoo in a while. (laughs) So, it's at number 18. It's episode 39, so... It's been a while. It's been a while. 1933. And I think that was also another case of that movie resonating much more strongly, horrifically with me than it did with you. Yeah, I mean... It wasn't like you weren't saying it wasn't a horror movie, but yeah, yeah, it's why it's so high up in here. Comparing Murders in the Zoo and La Diabolique, La Diabolique obviously goes above. Okay. But where I kind of stopped was Isle of the Dead. From 1945. It's ranked at number 12, episode Mm. 133. Mm -hmm. That is also a movie of the main character not really knowing what's going on. Is she a vampire? Is she not? And, like, not being in control of herself Mm -hmm. as a result. It's also fucking amazing. And as Boris Karloff and amazing visuals. And I could go on and on. But if you want to hear me go on and on, listen to that episode. So between 12 and 18, we have Isle of the Dead... Son of Frankenstein, The Body Snatcher, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Dracula, Murders in the Zoo. All right, well, if we're working within your range, and we have to, because I didn't make a range because I didn't think this was a horror, so I feel like... We can go below the range if you really feel like it. I, you know, if I was going to make a range for this, I would probably be looking more around the 30s in the Cat in the Canary or the Uninvited neighborhood but no i feel like 
this is kind of your your baby here. And if we're looking at between 12 and 18, I'm thinking it's probably worth putting above Dracula, Bride of Frankenstein, and Frankenstein. Where I start to get a little more iffy is movies like Son of Frankenstein and The Body Snatcher. Which, you know, again, both have like a more consistent, I think, horror style and mood through them. Like, it's never yeah. unclear what genre we're in with Absolutely. those movies. Um, with The Body Snatcher, I always think about how much story we get from reading between the lines, but also from the quiet moments. Mm. Like, I think of that moment when the, the wife is in the parlor. Right. And kind of gives a little bit of the backstory. Well, Diabolique doesn't really have that. Like, you get stuff from, like, bits and pieces of gossip. Yeah. But it's very much like a economy of storytelling. Yes. Rather than deepening the characters. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're given their backstories as a way of providing, like, motivations. But in terms of, like, characterization, they're basically, like, the maiden, the whore, and the man. Right? Like, in terms of, yeah. like, character archetypes. Yeah, very much an Eve Lilith Adam situation. Yeah, exactly. Like, Christina is, you know, almost innocent to a fault. To the point where she's treated as a child. Right. Whereas, like, you know, Nicole is the mistress already coming into the story, and then she is the only person who is a murderer in both the fake murder and the real murder. Yes. Um, and there's Michelle, who's, like, just, you know, a bastard all around. Yeah. Yeah. Adam. <laughs> <laughs> so I I feel like, you know, thinking about this, I would feel comfortable putting this below the body snatcher, but above Frankenstein. All right, let's do it. Okay. Entering the list at the new number 15, good showing for a movie I didn't want to put on the list. <laughs> is Le Diabolique from 1955, directed by Henri-Georges Glouzeau. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find the other episodes I've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, including if we've missed films or if we've put films on the list that you think we should actually take off, drop us a line on our ask box, or you can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to yell at us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are found by subscribing to our RSS feed. You can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review. Reviews and ratings on Apple Podcasts help the show get seen by... Apple's algorithm, which, um, if you are a user of Apple technology, controls your life, whether you like it or not. Um, <laughs> other ways you can help the show out is by telling your friends about us. It's October. It's spooky season. Everybody's like, what are some good horror movies I've never seen? And you can be like... Conveniently, I have a list right <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah, exactly. Like, the number one movie on our list, which has been the number one movie on our list forever at this point is criminally underseen. Yes. Like, it never gets talked about, I feel like. Like, it's... it's Unless you're in, like, specific circles. Right. Like, if you haven't seen the Frederick March, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, by this point... I don't know what to tell you. I, like, just stop. 
what you're like, doing. Press pause on this podcast. Go, go watch, watch it. The movie. Maybe listen to the episode if you if you want. If like, you want to, yeah. yeah, yeah but yeah, like you yeah, know, if like you're driving in your car, like pull the car over, like rent it on YouTube, sit there, watch <laughs> it, like do it. Um. Uh, thanks, Sheila Buff. <laughs> You can also help us out by heading over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for just a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get bonus content. Every October we do ultra bonus content um, that's special because it's the Halloween season. So if you would like to get access to this October's Bounty of Goods, as well as the Bounties of October's Past, head on over to patreon.com slash podcast. Join people like Joshua Shanklin. Thanks, Joshua. Thanks again. This was a pretty big episode, I think. Uh, not our biggest, but I think it was pretty big. Mm-hmm. What, what's next week? What are we watching next? Well, it's the screen's master of the weird in his newest and most daring shocker. It's Bella Lugosi, who we haven't seen in a very long time. I think since Scared to Death. You see, Sarah... This movie is more horrifying than Dracula or Frankenstein. It'll make your skin crawl. It's Bride of the Monster, directed, produced, and written by Edward D. Wood Jr. Oh, so another big movie. (laughs) In a different way. In a different way. All right, well, stay tuned, Creatures of the Night, for next week. Bye. Bye.